Amen. Wasn't that great? I was thinking, um, there's that great passage that says, every good and perfect gift is from above. And a part of the beauty of music and art and creativity is not that we worship those things, we worship the one who made them. And so when we hear a beautiful song like that, when we hear, uh, I said wrong first, viola, right? Not violin. I was corrected after the first service. Um, to which I told the person, people don't expect that I'm smart, so they sort of see those mess-ups as normal. But uh, I think that's, it's, it's just one of the, occasionally we'll, we'll clap for somebody, and, and we do that not because we worship the music, we worship the creator who created and gave us gifts. And uh, we think everybody sitting here this morning, God has created you in his image. He wants to redeem and make you whole, and he's made you for a purpose. And uh, we're excited to be in that together, to be in it with you. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. And uh, I was just outside sort of running back and forth. Um, my daughter's going off to camp. We have more kids, more, more elementary age kids going off to Lake Beauty than we ever have before. So we have a, another bus full. Uh, if you ever want to have fun, you can be the person who rides to and from Lake Beauty with those kids on a bus. I'm sure that's a spiritual gift of some of you in here. My daughter was reminiscing about last year and Jeff Royce rode up with them and read Love Does and she thought it was the best thing. So they look forward to the bus ride as much as they do to camp. Oh, God bless them. And uh, we had a bunch of students leave yesterday for a trip down to Tennessee for a huge gathering of students from our denomination called Chick. And I say those two things because I hope you will with me pray for them that God meets them in uh, some ways that are formative to them as they move forward in their faith journey. So we can be in that together. Quick announcement before we jump into the word. After the service is a new deal we're, we're sort of trying. We did after the first service, and it was a lot of fun. We're going to have it again. A little meet and greet. If you're new or if you're newer around Crossview and you'd like to hear a little bit about what's going on, who we are, DNA, how we're wired, how you can get involved, all those different things, Hang out with us for about 15, 20 minutes after the service in classroom one. It's on the hallway on this side, and uh, I'll give you a little overview of what Crossview is about, and then we would love just to say, what does it look like for you to maybe take a next step in your faith journey around here? I'm out of breath, and we haven't even started reading Acts 9. Okay, Acts chapter 9, before we do it, let me pray. God, this is your word, and it is your story that you've invited us into, Lord, so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing to you so that we could hear with clarity, with beauty, with grace, all of your story this morning. Do that to the glory of your name. Pray this name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Amen. We are only a few weeks away from being done of this year-long series that we've been in that started at the beginning of last September in uh, Genesis 1 and will end at the end of Revelation in just a few weeks. So there are a few times in the winter when we're towards the end of the Old Testament where I was praying for God to hurry along in this. And uh, now I find myself honestly sort of like, oh, it's going to be a bummer to be, be done with this series because I think getting a big picture understanding of what God is up to is a very important thing for us. And as we've been in the book of Acts, this will be our fourth week in the book of Acts, we've been asking the question, we're not called to be the church in Acts. The church in Acts was the church in Acts. We're called to be the church 2,000 years later. And so what do we learn from the early church? How do we embody who God is as God's people in 2015 where we live 
What does it look like for us to be the church? And that's what we're asking as we go to the text. And we're in a story probably many of you have heard. The conversion of Saul. And how we do it around here is we're going to read through it, make a little commentary, and then at the end, we're going to have a couple of takeaways that help us live this out as we leave this room. Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Meanwhile, Saul. I'll give you a little background to who Saul was. Saul, in the first century, would have been a very, very faithful Jew. Praying three times a day, knowing the Torah, he would have been the epitome of what it meant to be a faithful Jew. Sometimes we give him a little bit of bad rap because he was killing Christians, but that's what they were doing. Because these were people who, who were sort of rebelling against faithful Judaism. And so he is this faithful Jew doing what he should. And he is on this journey to a town to basically suppress this new Christianity. They're going to call it the way. It says, meanwhile, Saul... And if you're new to church also, by the way, Saul becomes Paul. Paul writes probably about a third of the New Testament. That's who this guy is. So meanwhile, Saul, who became Paul, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus. Damascus is a little town north of the Sea of Galilee, a little off to the east, asking for their co cooperation in the arrest, and listen to this, of any followers of the way. That, word, that wording, the way, is going to be used a few times in the book of Acts. And if you think back to the last time we heard it in the Bible, Jesus said in John 14, I am the way. And so now we have this new community of people confessing faith in Jesus Christ, and they are called the way. Let's keep reading. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And we're going to see that the voice of Jesus is, this is the voice of Jesus, but it's intriguing that Jesus' words to Saul are the very ones you're per persecuting. It's not that you're just persecuting them. When you persecute a follower of mine, you persecute me. And so he is with them in their suffering. Who are you, Lord? Saul asked in verse 5. And the vo voice replied, underline these words, I am Jesus, the one you were persecuting, now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. Some interesting parts to the story that we don't know why, but they're, they're interesting. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus, who remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. Now, there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. We don't know much about Ananias other than he was a new believer, a new follower of the way. The Lord spoke to him in a vision, calling Ananias. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying for me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. Let's just stop for a second. A beautiful young girl in our little meet and greet between the services. She was reading her Bible last night and she asked her dad, does God, she was reading this text, getting ready for this morning. How cool is that? And she asked her dad, does God still speak like this to us today? Um, because that'd be nice. Anybody agree with me? Like, it'd be great if each morning God just gave me a little rundown of what I'm going to do the rest of the day. Like, word for word, here's what I want you to do, how I want you to act, how I want you to parrot, how I want you to be a neighbor. And we know that, that, that for most of us, God normally doesn't speak this way. Maybe he does. Just at certain times, at certain people, maybe that happens. 
But the majority of the time that we've seen in the book of Acts, for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ, we now have the presence of God in us, called the Holy Spirit, and the way that God normally speaks to us is through these movements and urgings of God's voice inside of us. Like we know when God is pointing towards something, telling us something to do. We don't always get this experience. And for a lot of us, you probably will never have it looking just like this. So we keep reading. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. He is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon his name. You can imagine if you're Ananias and you were told to go meet with the guy who's killing everybody that, who is part of this old new faith thing with you. Your response would be the same, but Lord. And we know what that's like because we have those promptings by God through the Holy Spirit often. And we throw out the same, but, but God, I, I don't want to do that. I don't want to go there. I don't want to talk to that person. But the Lord said, go for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my sake. Isn't that interesting? The one who causes suffering is now invited into a place of suffering. Suffering that has meaning. So Ananias went and found Saul. He laid his hands on him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who has appeared to you on the road and has sent me so that you might gain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Instantly something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight. Then he got up and was baptized. Afterwards he ate some food and regained his strength. And we keep reading. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days and immediately he began preaching about Jesus. We're going to talk about a couple of ideas from this text that I think will help us live more faithfully as followers of Christ. But this story, the conversion of, of Saul, which is probably in the heading of some of your Bibles, we, we have sort of put this as the way that everybody must come to Jesus. You have a Damascus Road experience. You encounter a light. Jesus changes your life. And immediately Saul begins preaching against the very thing that he was trying to tear down. So immediately he's preaching about, this is amazing, preaching about Jesus in the synagogues, the places and all these little towns where faithful Jews would come together to worship Yahweh. And then he says, he is indeed the son of God. So his message is the Yahweh that you're worshiping, this Jesus who died and they claim rose again, he is the son of Yahweh. He is God embodied. He is what he said. Verse 21, all who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem? They asked, and didn't he come here to arrest them and take them in chains to the leading priests? Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus couldn't refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. We're going to talk a little bit about this idea of spiritual conversations that Ananias entered into with Saul, and then Saul begins preaching God's word. And it's interesting, if you look at the New Testament, if you look at the Gospels, you look at the messages and Acts, the time where it's sort of confrontational, the time where there's a lot of logic and a lot of proof, is when the good news about Jesus Christ is being, being brought to a faithful Jew. That's almost, almost every time that's where that happens. When it's somebody on the fringes or somebody, a Gentile, it happens in a very, very different way. We'll talk about that in a second. Um, verse 22, and Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. The Jews in Damascus couldn't refuse, refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. After a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. Suffering started. They were watching for him day and night at the city gate so they could murder him, but Saul was told about their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lowered him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. 
When Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers, but they were afraid of him, understandably so. They did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Isn't that interesting? We do that same thing. Someone comes to faith in Jesus like, I don't know if it's, I want to see fruit first. I want to see if it's actually true. Same type of thing. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to him. He also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So Saul stayed with the apostles and went all around Jerusalem with them, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. He debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but they tried to murder him. When the believers heard about this, they took him to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. And listen to this. The church then had peace throughout Judea, Galilee and Samaria, and it became stronger as the believers lived in the fear of the Lord. And with the encouragement of the Holy Spirit, it grew in numbers. So again, we are not this church in Acts, but we're the church over 2,000 years later. What does it look like for us to learn from a text like this what it means to faithfully live out God's story today? And there's two ideas from this text that I want us to talk about. One is the idea of conversion. This has been called the conversion of Saul. And I want to talk about this idea of what, what does it mean to be converted? How do we talk about that? And then in relationship to that, to look at Ananias and talk about the idea of how do we have and engage in spiritual conversation. So the first one is this idea of conversion. The word conversion has become a popular word in Christianity today, more so often in evangelical Christianity. And it has its roots in this Greek word, epistrephal which simply means to turn toward, or it can mean to turn away from somebody. And we don't talk about conversion. That's not a normal word you use outside of sort of religious language, but the idea of turning away, turning towards something, it's normal in our lives. We, we do it all the time. If you are a really, really spiritual person and you are in connection with God, you try and convert your friends from Microsoft to Apple. It's just what you do if you love Jesus. If you're even more spiritual, you try and convert your friends from the Vikings to the Broncos. And I had somebody after the first service say, no, if you're really spiritual, it's from the Vikings to the Packers, but we all know that's not true. But think about it, we, we do conversion all the time. You get in a political debate, in a community like ours, we have people across the political spectrum. You get in a political debate, what are you trying to do? I want you to come to my side. I think you should believe and think how I believe about politics. I remember a number of years ago, I, this story still sticks in my head. My wife and I had an anniversary. We went to Chow Bella up in a diner in Bloomington, and um, I had the scallops, the seared scallops, and it rocked my world. I mean, it was a religious experience. And so what did I do for the next three weeks? Everybody I saw needed to go to Chow Bella, and they needed to have the scallops. We do conversion all the time, Right? We do it all the time in the, in the way we live and what we believe and what we think. And yet the idea of conversion in our society is sort of when it comes to religion, you don't talk about it. It's either believe what you want to believe or we just, that's not a conversation we enter into. And the challenge is in the biblical text, and I would say the, the reality is in most major religions that we all try to convert. And that's okay. That's okay. Scripture, part of this normative reality of Scripture, Jesus did it, the early church did it, is they tried converting people to come into the way of Jesus. It's an important thing 
that we do. Scott McKnight says this. He wrote a book about the whole idea of conversion. And he basically looked at the conversion of Paul and the conversion of Peter. But here's what he said conversion is. Conversion is the transformation of our identity from a self-identity to a Christ identity. At the end of the day, that's what it is. It's my identity turning from self-identity about me, about what I think, about what my real, whatever you want to put in there, about my sin and shame and brokenness, and putting it fully in Christ. That's what conversion is. But here's the thing on the Damascus Road story. So probably for the last 50 years, in a lot of Christianity, we have looked at Saul's story in Acts chapter 9, and we, we sort of think that's what everybody should have. That should be everybody's faith story. That there should be a moment on the road where you encountered Jesus, you prayed a prayer, you, went in, you got a Bible, and you wrote that date, that minute in time in your Bible, and you know you're saved. And for some of you in this room, and it's beautiful, that's your story. But for a lot of us in this room, your story is a lot more like Peter. So if you look at Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, when did Peter cross the line of faith? We know he did, right? We know he was a disciple and an apostle, a key, key player in the early church. We don't know exactly when. We, just, we know that he put his full faith and trust in Jesus. We don't know when it is, and I would encourage you to look at his story. So one of the things that we've started at our council meetings, council is sort of the governing board of our church, is each meeting we start the meeting by one of us sharing our story of faith, how we came to faith in Jesus Christ. And it's intriguing. On occasion you hear a Saul story. Someone who knows the exact time they encountered Jesus, but I would say the majority of the time it's a lot more like Peter. I sort of grew up in it. I don't know exactly when I put my, but I know my faith and trust is in Jesus Christ, that I have the forgiveness of sins and I have hope and freedom and life that Jesus offers, but I, I can't tell you exactly when it happened. And the important part of Acts 9 and the conversion of Saul are those three words in verse 5 where Jesus says, I am Jesus. The common denominator in any Christian faith story should be the centrality of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection, that you have encountered a loving God who came in human form, who lived and died and rose again. That should be the common denominator, denominator in all of our faith stories. And I think that's one of the things from this early church experience that we need to talk about. If we're going to faithfully be the church, there is no conversion story in here that is better than another. If you've encountered Jesus Christ, you are a miracle of new creation. Amen? Second thing. It's related to this, but a little different. Is this idea of spiritual conversations. What does it look like? Ananias did it. He heard this voice, and he's called into this place to have this conversation. He's afraid and uncomfortable, but he walks into it anyway. And so as people, if you're here and you've put your faith in Christ and you have God, the Holy Spirit living in you, I believe that God, probably on a consistent basis, prompts you to enter into places, spaces, relationships, and to have conversations with people about God. That's all a spiritual conversation is. It's not as though you have to put like sort of a sales page, I gotta get exactly right. No, a conversation is you in relationship with another person, talking to them, about God. So what does it look like to enter into places where we have conversations with people that actually matter? 
I was talking with a friend this week, and she was saying she's working with somebody who, who she knows is not a follower of Jesus, and she's like, I, I don't know where to start. I'm trying to figure out how to do this. And she closed off this little story by saying, right now I'm just praying about it, that God would show me where to have that conversation. And I thought that was so perfect. Like, yeah, start there. Start by inviting God into this place where God would direct us into the places where we should and have, should have these spiritual conversations. Because for the majority of us, when we see Ananias and then what we, when we see what Paul did, the whole preaching thing, that forget that, but Ananias just engaged in a conversation with somebody, we are overwhelmed. We're probably in two extremes. Some of you, and you think about talking about God, talking about your faith, it just scares you. Might ruin the friendship, you might not know what to say, all these different things. For others of you in the room, you, you probably do it a lot, but we can always learn how to do it more effectively. How to talk about God, how to talk about our faith, how to talk about Jesus more effectively. I found this great little resource. I'm going to actually walk down through it real quickly as we close. From a guy named Luke Colley. He works with InterVarsity. InterVarsity is a campus ministry that does absolutely fabulous work. And he looked at the story of Jesus with the woman at the well. So he's with this Samaritan woman. Number one, if you're a faithful Jew, you don't hang out with a Samaritan woman, a Samaritan. Number two, more importantly, you don't hang out one-on-one -on -one with a woman. And so he looked at this crazy story in the Gospels and said, there's so much that we can learn about how to have spiritual conversations and I'm going to skim over it, but I would encourage you to write that stuff down and search it online. So in looking at this story of Jesus with the woman at the well, he gave six ideas that are great. First one is this. Start conversations with anyone. Start conversations with anyone. If you look at the story of Jesus, you look at the Gospels, Jesus wasn't afraid to talk to people. One of the things... I'm a minister, got, you know, the, the whole, all the, the things to, to be able to talk about God. One of the things that scares me is when I'm on the golf course and get paired up with somebody else. Because you know what's going to happen by hole three? They're going to ask that dreaded question, what do you do for a living? <laughs> and, and I can't lie because I'm a pastor, right? So the moment that the question, what do you do for a living, and I throw the word pastor out, um, I know for the next 15 holes we're talking about things that matter. I'm afraid, just like a lot of you are, because what do I say? Is this going to be weird? All these different things. But I also know that if that happens and God opens that door, I believe that God has opened the door. What does it look like for you to be open to conversations with anybody in different environments, in different places? Second one is this. And this is good. Some of these will convict more than others. Adjust your life patterns to make conversations possible. Probably like most of you, my life is planned out almost by the minute, right? My wife and I have shared Google Calendar. Our kids are running everywhere. And so it's, we look at our week and we talk on Sunday and it's like blinders are on. Here's where we're going. Which means often I miss some of these places where God might invite, be inviting me in the conversations that really matter into places where I could interact with somebody. And I can't save them, but I could point them towards a living and loving God who created them and wants to be in relationship with them. That's what Jesus did with the woman at the well, right? Just sat down. Just sat down and started talking to her. Third one is this. <laughs> Chat about everyday life. 
So when Jesus comes up to the woman at the well, he didn't open the Torah and begin saying, this is about me, put your faith in me. What did Jesus do when he sat down with the woman at the well? Can I have some water? What does it mean to be normal people who engage in normal conversations with people who God loves? It changes the paradigm a little bit. It takes a little bit of the pressure off. Begin with normal conversation. Chat about everyday life. And the writer of this little article says this in this part. He said, Jesus knew that any serious and authentic conversation is just a hair's breadth away from the gospel. Isn't that good? Any truly authentic, any conversation you're in with somebody where you're valuing the fact that they are creating the image of God, loved by God, is a hair's breadth away from the gospel. Next one is this. Ask, ask questions. Ask questions. Christians are often known for shouting and spewing off what we know. I would love to be known for somebody who's good at asking questions and getting to know somebody. For sure, sharing Jesus, for sure. But what does it look like for you to really get to know somebody? A number of years ago, I had a friend when we lived in Philly and wasn't a Christian. We'd been a friend, friends for a number of months and we were sitting on our back porch and he looked at me and said, Brad, I think you would be my friend even if I never came to Jesus Christ. In my mind, I looked at him, I was like, I hope so, but I don't know. But what does it look like to be in relationships where you're just, you're in it, period. Share Jesus, talk about your faith, because that should be the most important thing in your life, but you're just in that relationship because you believe the image of God is in everybody and God wants to restore their brokenness. Five, listen to questions. Then, and this is a good one, then ask the question behind the question. Jesus did it with the woman at the well. He asked questions, then he learned about her story, and then he was able through that to point her towards what actually was good news. What does it mean to ask good questions of people who God brings into your life and to ask questions that help you realize who they are, what their story is, and how you can bring Jesus into their story? What does it look like? Jesus did that. I mean, read the Gospels. Jesus shares life with him in a very different way with the rich young ruler than he does with a prostitute who's being stoned. He enters in to the story. And the last one is this. Share Jesus. Share Jesus all day long. Remember we talked, we're, we get so passionate about so many different things. About our sports teams about a new way of eating, a new working out thing, all these different things. What if our passion for Jesus Christ and seeing other people have the life that is beyond any life they can imagine, what if that became the thing that we were most passionate about? Let's pray. Father, this, it's 2,000 years later, God, and it, I, I still... I find myself amazed that, that your story, this start to this early church, which was broken and beautiful and messed up all at the same time, that it, not only has it lasted, it is growing in hope and life and justice. It's all because of what you are doing through your people, God. 
So Lord, would we faithfully learn your story and what it means to invite people towards you, what it means to have conversations, to not be afraid. God, would we walk out of this room this morning and not be afraid to have conversations about you? I pray this to the glory of your name, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.